If you've been here in the last about four weeks, we, actually five weeks, we spent five weeks in the book of Jonah, uh, the Old Testament book of Jonah. Uh, And now we're going to skip ahead to another book written to the same group of people, the Ninevites. So we'll be looking at the the book of Nahum. If you aren't sure where that's at in your Bible, um, I don't blame you, to be honest. Uh, It's small. It's in what we call the minor prophets, which are 12 shorter prophetic books in the Old Testament. Uh, Feel free to look it up in the table of contents. No shame in that. There never is, but especially something like this that maybe you haven't spent much time in. But I encourage you to open up there. If you need a Bible, there's some under the chairs in front of you, and you'll find Nahum on page 930 in those Bibles. And in a moment, I'll read the first chapter. But a bit of an introduction. I probably don't need to convince you that there is much injustice in the world. There's much that is wrong, uh, that is wickedness, perhaps that you have experienced, uh, perhaps that you just see and hear about in others, that you hear and you say, this is wrong, this ought not to be that way. And some of it is never brought to justice, at least from a human perspective that we see. There are some things that we will never see fully resolved in this life. In fact, if you draw it out, and if we were sitting across from each other at a table, I would maybe draw it something like this, this big circle, kind of more like an oval, I suppose, if that represents all of the injustice in the world, all that is wrong, all that has been done wrong to others, all that has been done wrong by, by countries or by individuals, how much of that will actually see reconciliation, will see justice in this life? How much of it will a criminal get caught, prosecuted, and punished? How much of it will a country be held to account? Perhaps generously, we could color in a small portion of this total amount and say that will be held to account. What about all of this other stuff? What about cases of abuse that never get reported? Or they get reported but they never get punished? What about war crimes that are never held to account? What about failed states in the world where the, the police themselves are corrupt? And so who would you go to for justice? What about custody battles that just seem so unfairly drawn and never a resolution there? And on and on and on. What about situations like that? Jonah wrestled with that in one sense. Jonah's big complaint that we saw for five weeks was, God, there is injustice. The Ninevites have done great injustice, great wrong. When will you hold them account? Why will you not punish them, God? He struggled with that. Well, now we're fast-forwarding 160 years to the book of Nahum. And it's the same group of people, the Ninevites, which is the capital city of Assyria. 160 years. That's as much time as has elapsed since the Civil War until now in our own country. 160 years, and they've only gotten stronger. To place it on a map, Nineveh is this capital city of Assyria, this region here, uh, modern-day Iraq, actually right by modern-day Mosul in Iraq. At the time of Jonah... It was a powerful country, but really reserved to this area here. In the 160 years since Jonah, they've expanded all the way down into Egypt. They captured one of the main cities in Egypt, a city of Thebes. Really, there's an island 
that is Judah that is remaining. Israel has been taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. They're pressing at the door of Judah. And now the attention turns once again to this group of people. It's hard to imagine a more powerful ancient kingdom. Their borders extended, but also they were just, their, their capital city was viewed as unstoppable. The city of Nineveh, it, it was strong in the time of Jonah. It's only stronger now. It has a double layer of walls around it. The inner layer is 100 feet tall, which is three times as tall as the walls in this room. It was so wide that three chariots could race side by side. A, a, a chariot is not a very helpful unit of measurement for me. I don't know about you. Like, oh, three chariots. Oh, right. Um, but, I mean, you can kind of picture that probably. You know, 20 feet wide or more. That was also surrounded by a river that went through there that they viewed as kind of a, a built-in moat. Imagine getting taken away to this city as a captive, and you're marched through it, these massive walls. They take you into a room where they're displaying evidence of all the other people groups that they've conquered, which is what they did. They did artwork like this, this stone artwork that shows them conquering all these other people. This is from the sack of Thebes, this city in, uh, in Egypt. And they have images of throwing people off the walls, of taking them away into captivity. Men, women, children, uh, they have evidence, pictures that they drew boasting in the way that they cut off body parts and put hooks through jaws and pulled them away. It was a brutal people. And you're marched into this city and you see this and you think, how could this people be stopped? Jonah's question was, Lord, how could you show compassion on these people? Look at them. Look what they've done. Look at their brutality. How could you show compassion? The book of Jonah is about that. Now, 160 years later, at their peak, the question is more like, Lord, how could you stop them? They're so powerful. We can't stop them. And what we see in the book of Nahum is that God will. That his power will be seen against this group of people. And in many ways, it is the message that Jonah wanted to bring. It's been called Jonah's favorite book. Uh, because it's what he wanted to say. It, Jonah wanted to say, God will bring justice. And he was upset at God's compassion. And now Nahum is saying, it is fixed. God is going to destroy the Ninevites. You might wonder, what, what relevance does this book have for my life? Nineveh is not breathing down your neck. But what we see in this book is a display of God's character, of God's justice. We see in that comfort in the uncertainty of our own world. And we see, I think we'll see as we go through, a, a picture of how God's justice fits together with his compassion. We won't go through all of it. It's a relatively short book, but still a little bit more than we have time to do in one shot as far as reading every verse. But we'll read big chunks of it and try to see this idea of a book as a whole. Let me start reading now in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging. And wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves his wrath, he reserves wrath for his enemies. 
The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. We'll pause there for chapter 1. What we see in chapter 1 is really a prediction of Nineveh's destruction in brief form. It'll get very specific in chapter 2. But in chapter 1, we see a brief form, a brief prediction of Nineveh's destruction. But it actually begins with just a general statement of God's character. Maybe you saw that. Look again at verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance. And on and on and on. It's a statement about God's character that now will be applied in a specific situation, but his character is unchanging. We maybe struggle when we see a description of God as jealous. And part of that is because we can't conceive of jealousy that is not a sinful jealousy. Because ours is. Typically when we're jealous, there's a a, a sinful coveting, I want what you have and I... I want to take it from you. But that is not God's jealousy. God's jealousy is a holy jealousy, knowing that the best thing for his people is himself. And so he's jealous with a godly jealousy, a holy jealousy, because he wants, he wants them for himself, because it is actually the very best thing for them as well. He is slow to anger, it says in verse 3, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. If you were here last week, at the end of Jonah, you might recognize these words. This is once again a quotation, uh, an echo of Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where God reveals himself to Moses. He says, Moses, this is who I am. If you know nothing else about me, make sure you know this. And it was a quote that Jonah quoted, but not completely. And so to remind you, or in case you weren't here last week, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says this, And he, that is the Lord, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Jonah quoted this, but not all of it. What Jonah quoted was this part. 
I knew that you were compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He quoted this first part about God's compassion, and he was mad at God for it. I don't want you to be compassionate. I want you to be a judge. So he took this truncated view of God and then was mad at God for it, and he left off the statement about God's justice. Nahum completes the statement. Because what he has here is the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Jonah couldn't see ahead to how God was, yes, going to show compassion there, but as the people went back to the very same things, he would one day bring justice. And Jonah was bothered by this truncated view of God not seeing the whole. We can be like that. We, we can take part of this statement about God and be bothered by one part of the other and seeing, instead of seeing the whole. We maybe like the idea of God's compassion, but we don't like the idea of him punishing sin. Or you might like the idea of him punishing sin because of what others have done to you, but you struggle with God's compassion. The Bible doesn't let us separate those. It forces us again and again, like the parallel books of Jonah and Nahum, to see both, that God is compassionate and just. We don't always see those worked out in our lives, but that is true of his character. It goes on to describe how God is not only a God of wrath, although it gives many verses on that, but verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. And we'll see that play out in this book. It is primarily a book of God's wrath, but there's hope for those who take refuge in him because he is good. Verse 8 hints at the way that God would bring an end to Nineveh. Look at verse 8 again. It says, With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. And that is exactly what happens in 612 B.C. Nineveh, that was so proud of these massive walls and the river right next to it, they were undone by that river. There was a great flood, and that river came and it eroded the foundations of the walls, and those walls came down, and their enemy, the Babylonians, rushed in and took over the city. And so it was this flood that is predicted here in verse 8 that is very much what God used to bring down the city. We get this general description here, hinting ahead, but chapter 2 is anything but general. Open to chapter 2. Keep your Bible open there if you already closed it, um, or if you haven't closed it, keep it open there. And I want you to look. It, the, the tone of it shifts. And as you're reading, it's, it's predictive and yet it is so descriptive, it's as if Nahum is seeing it happen. We'll pick up in verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march. And the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall and the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves, beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. 
wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. Skipping ahead to verse 13, the last one. Behold, I am against you. In verse 13, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Did you notice just a change in tone to just these short statements, kind of like the chaos of battle as as the soldiers are marching in and they're dressed in red, made more red by the fighting. Chariots are rushing through the street and the clanging of steel. This is meant to, like, throw you into the midst of the battle, saying that this is what God will do. The the gates will be opened up, which is what we talked about with the river taking down the walls and the people rushing in. Verse 9, it says it would be plundered. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. Nineveh was the wealthiest city possibly in the world at the time, certainly in that area. They had silver and gold that they'd gotten from all over. They were an incredibly wealthy city. And so in 1852, when it was rediscovered, after 2,000 years of kind of being covered by sand and hidden, the archaeologists thought, we're going to get rich. It's going to be all this gold. And as they unearthed it, they didn't find any. They found a library, they found artwork, but they found no gold and no silver because just what this says is what happened. It was all plundered. All of the gold, all the silver was taken away, just as this said. Verse 7 says, it is fixed. This will happen. Nineveh, this will happen to it. And the chapter ends with such a sober statement. Look again at verse 13. It says, I'm against you. How sobering it would be to have the God of all the universe say, I am against you. I'm against you. Why is he saying this to Nineveh? We saw it a little bit in Jonah, and it's only gotten worse over those 160 years, and it's what is described in chapter 3. So if that's a question in your mind, why? Why is God bringing this judgment? What could possibly deserve this? You don't have to look any farther than the very beginning of chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. There were a bloody, violent people that were just rolling over the nations around them. And they had been for 200 years. Prior to the time of Jonah, up to Jonah, now 160 years, they've been rolling over weaker enemies all the way down to Egypt. In chapter 3, it goes on to describe the, the sack of Thebes, this other city, sometimes called by another name, which they are here depending on your translation, brutalizing their neighbors. A city full of lies and pillage. So it's no wonder we get to the very end of the book, the very end of the chapter. Look ahead there to verse 19 of chapter 3. It says, There is no relief for your breakdown. Your your wound is incurable. Meaning, you, you will not turn from it this time. There will not be repentance this time. There will not be compassion this time. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. Saying, these other nations, when word gets to them of how you've been overthrown, they will clap their hands. Why? 
because they've been brutalized by Nineveh for generation after generation. And they're relieved when finally justice comes. Because it goes on to say, For on whom has not your evil passed continually? So why is God against them? Why is he saying he's going to cut them off and bring this judgment? Because of this wickedness that all the people around them have experienced. So it's no wonder in verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, I am against you. And it's repeated again. Look in the middle of chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Lift up your skirts over your face. Show to the nations your nakedness, to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. It will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? If you're ever looking for a verse not to send to a friend, um, (laughs) this would probably be it, right? I mean, taken just pulled out, I, I am against you. I will uncover you, throw filth upon you. Why would God say that? It's a statement of this judgment that they've built up for themselves. What makes judgment passages hard? What makes it hard when we we read a book like this and we're only getting, I know, some snippets of it. What makes it hard? Because we know that, yeah, God is a God who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. We see evidence of that here. And then we look in the mirror and if we're honest, we say, I'm, I'm guilty. Will God not let me go unpunished? You might not be guilty of the exact same thing as the Ninevites. You, you probably haven't sacked any cities in Egypt, right? You're not guilty of the same things. But when you hold yourself against the standard of God's word, and I hold myself against the standard of God's word, we see our guilt. We, we even just think of the Ten Commandments. You may not have committed murder, which was one of those, and it's what they're obviously guilty of here. But have you put any other gods before the true God? And the Bible warns about idolatry, even with things like money that are functionally doing that. Have you misused his name in casual speech where it flows out like a swear word or in other ways where you're living in consistency with claiming to know his name? Have you honored your parents? That's not just a parenting strategy. That's one of the Ten Commandments. To to honor your father and mother. When you're young, that clearly means not just speaking respectfully of them, but obeying them. And as you get older, that speaking respectfully of continues, even if you're not under their authority. Have you done that day in and day out? Would your parents say you've done that? Adultery is named. And Jesus says it's not just a physical act, but cultivating it in your heart, that lust in your heart. Have you stolen anything, even if it's small? Have you lied, even if you feel like it's justified? Have you coveted? Have you jealously wanted your neighbor's home or spouse or job or life? All these things, they might not be lining you up with Nineveh, but, but they're ways that You and I violate God's law. And if we read, he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. 
where does that leave us? And we wonder, will he say the same thing that he said to Nineveh? Behold, I am against you. I will cut you off. I will set you up as a spectacle. Friends, that is what we would deserve. And there's, there's only one reason we wouldn't face that. Think about Jesus' words. This is Jesus in Matthew 27. Hanging on the cross as a spectacle, just as described in Nahum chapter 3. Naked as a spectacle before the people. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is cut off in a way that we would deserve to be cut off. God is, the Father is pouring that wrath on, on him. That wrath that is built up. God takes this sin that is mine, that is yours, and he places it upon him. So that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says about Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus who had no wrath built up against him, who had never done anything wrong, perfectly obeyed all the commands of God. Yet God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. All of that poured upon him. Why? The second half of the verse goes on to say, so that in him, not in ourselves, not for what we've done, not because we decided to turn our lives around, but in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's wrath on him so that his righteousness is given to us. What's the, what's the phrase repeated against Nineveh a couple times? I'm against you. I'm against you. If you're familiar with it, maybe you can't help but think of Romans chapter 8. Now what it says to the believer, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Friends, God is, if you have trusted in Christ, God is not against you. God is for you. There's even a song we sing. It's an upbeat, it's a happy song. God is for us. And you might wonder as you think, can, can we... Is it boastful to sing that? God is for me? Well, no, because it says right here, God is for you. It's against Nineveh. God is against all sin and wickedness, and yet, if we turn to Christ, God is, God is now for you. God is for you. How do we apply this? How do we apply this book that might seem like ancient history. Hopefully you've seen some hints all along. I want to give you a couple things. One is we can find comfort in God's sovereign control of the nations. Just like this book of Nahum is written about Nineveh, who is it for? It's probably for the people of Judah wondering, what will you do about this enemy that is bearing down on us? And what they're told is that God is sovereign over the nations and he will bring justice and he will bring an end to them they were vast and powerful. And they couldn't imagine how God would stop them. And yet, God is saying he would. He will, he will bring justice. And so it's one of those cases where that, that great circle of injustice, God will bring justice to a portion of that. There are some people that, that this might be a, a very applicable thing. And somebody like that could read Nahum and be comforted knowing that just as Nineveh 
would be hemmed in by God's sovereignty and God would bring an end there. So the enemy that they face will one day be brought to justice. And it could be within their lifetime. They could see that collapse. But if not then, then afterwards. God will bring justice. And and no sin will go unpunished, either because Jesus took that punishment or the person will face it themselves. And those are the only two options. So we see God's sovereign control over the nations. That's helpful for you if you're experiencing injustice that might not be resolved. A court case that will never go your way. An abuser that will never be brought to justice. Somebody lying about you that, that nobody ever seems to believe it. But, but God knows. And he's a God of justice. That's one application of this book. And, and the other goes back to a, a short statement in chapter 1. Flip back to chapter 1 and look again at verse 7. In a book that is three chapters, really, of God's wrath and God's, God's plan to bring justice to the Ninevites, there is a verse in here that is so rich with hope. Verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. He's a refuge. Again, who is this book written about, Nineveh? Who is it written for? Judah. That at this point was this small little island in the hills of Judea, surrounded by the Assyrians. And God is saying, I will be a refuge. And that's what happened. Assyria is wiped out in 612 B.C. Judah continues. The Babylonians who wipe out the Assyrians take Judah away into captivity. But then they come back. God brings them back. And now those people have persevered. Some are still in the land now. Some are scattered around the globe. But Jewish people have, have persevered. God has been a refuge in that sense. They have, they have outlasted even these enemies. And God still has a plan that he is working there. But zooming into your life, this would be true of your life. Because this is just a statement about God's character. This is a portion in this early part of the book that's not just about this obscure nation in the Middle East. It is about God's character. That he is a refuge. He is a refuge in the trials of life. No trial will outlast you in that sense. He is a refuge in particular and that you no longer have to hear, I am against you. Because Jesus has been that refuge if you've trusted in him. I'll end with this quick little anecdote. You might have seen the video that was kind of making the rounds this week of some hikers in Kyrgyzstan that were filming uh, an avalanche coming down the Rocky Mountains. Did any of you see that this week? Yeah, I see a few hands. The rest of you, it's worth like Googling, right? Um, it's these hikers that were hiking in the mountains of Kyrgyzstan. It's these rocky hillsides. And then off in the distance, this avalanche comes down and they're filming it. It looks great. But it's like getting closer and closer and it's right at them. And you just want to scream at your phone like, run! <laughs> Why are you filming it? But, but they keep filming it. It gets closer, closer, closer. And then you realize it's not going to stop before it gets to them. And that avalanche washes over them. And you think, how, how are they still alive? How are we watching this video? It's because you can't see it there, but in the video they step behind a rock. There's a refuge as this avalanche bears down. They're saved because of this rock that is a refuge. And that is a small picture of what this means when God describes himself as a rock, as a refuge, as a stronghold 
whether it's the trials of life or God's holy wrath that we would deserve on our own. And why do we not face it? Because Christ is our refuge who took it for us. Let's pray.